Welcome to the GM Yearbook. I'm Matt. And I'm Jim. We're here to take you on a journey through the years as we explore the music in our lifetime and the impact it's had on us and the world we've lived in. Welcome to version 1986 and welcome to the 80s. Woohoo! <laughs> hey, Matt. Are you ready to Wang Chung tonight? Why, yes, Jim. Whatever that means. Yes, <laughs> I am more than ready to have fun tonight. Thanks for bringing us to the 80s, Jim. Our generation certainly looks upon the decade with incredible fondness. Mm -hmm. Before we get started on the music, though, we'll take a few minutes to remember the people we lost that year. Well, Matt, as two bass players ourselves, and we've taken vocal duties a few times in our life, we both probably had a bit of an admiration of Phil Lynott. He was the driving force behind the band Thin Lizzy. He died primarily due to his drug and alcohol dependency. He collapsed at his home on Christmas Day, 1985, but his condition never improved, and he died from pneumonia and heart failure the following January. And then we have beloved bassist of Metallica, Cliff Burton. Oh, yeah. Died on that terrible tour bus accident in Sweden while they were supporting the Master of Puppets album. Mm -hmm. Metallica wasn't the only band to pay tribute musically to Cliff. Dave Mustaine wrote In My Darkest Hour. Anthrax dedicated their album Among the Living to him, and Metal Church followed the sentiment with the dark. So let's kick the Reaper out so we can make room for the music of 1986. Any year in that decade will be jam-packed with stuff to talk about. Where do you want to start, Jim? Uh, I'll start with the Beastie Boys. They debuted with what seemed like a novelty record in 1986 with License to Ill. We all remember that. But they went from that to becoming the third rap act to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Everyone knew Fight for Your Right to Party, the music video. It was iconic. It was just an enormously fun album to junior high kids everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Brass Monkey, Girls, and She's Crafty were some of the more well-known songs off the album. Is it a little dated now? Yeah, but it was catering to the maturity of a 13-year-old in 1986. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, yeah. And it's not so much about the big debuts in 1986. There were a couple of huge career trajectories that began. Bon Jovi and Janet Jackson, they launched chart-topping albums that would lead to achieving sales of over 100 million albums worldwide. Janet Jackson is second to Madonna in worldwide album sales. Yeah, and neither of those should be glossed over, especially Janet. I think she's uh, a, a little bit, uh, I don't want to say forgotten, because that sounds a little harsh, but it might be kind of the honest way to look at it. Yeah, well, we'll probably get to that down the road and reasons why. You know, Janet's album was huge, but I also think it's interesting that it's called Control, because that's what she took hold of when she made this record. Her father had been her manager and oversaw her career with the air quotes agreement that he'd <laughs> step aside, you know, if she got married. Well, she briefly got married. I'll use air quotes again briefly to one of the DeBarge brothers and broke away from working with her father. She showed the world that Michael wasn't the only Jackson who was designed to be a superstar and songs like Nasty and What Have You Done For Me, they dominated MTV in the charts. And why don't you tell us about Bon Jovi then, Matt? It doesn't matter what genre Slippery When Wet belongs to. Bon Jovi had moderate success with their previous albums, but this was more than a breakout. This was a smash hit takeover. Two number one hits, You Give Love a Bad Name and Living on a Prayer. Wanted Dead or Alive peaked at number seven, which I, I could have swore this was a number one hit. It probably should have been. It's probably the best song on the album. Mm -hmm. And Never Say Goodbye narrowly missed giving them four top ten hits. Those first three, you can hear it any random moment today 
Oh, absolutely. I, and I've never been a huge Jovi fan, but yeah, I loved Wanted Dead or Alive. I think part of my rock star dreams came straight out of the lyric. I've seen a million faces and I rock them all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bon Jovi's nothing I revisit. But it, back in the day, boy, this was really easy to get swept up into. Bon Jovi was part of that hair metal scene in 86, but they were far from alone in achieving enormous success. Mm -hmm. My favorite part of researching this week was dragging out my old cassettes of glorious, <laughs> glorious hair metal. At first, I'll be honest. When we were going to 86, I had a little tinge of embarrassment and I was expecting a cringe fest. I really was because I haven't really listened to a lot of this music recently, uh, but maybe it was just holding those old cassettes again. You know, it brought this huge wave of nostalgia. I can remember where I bought every one of these or, you know, or if it was a Christmas or a birthday present or, you know, hey, Matt, have this. I even remember specific listening moments. My Walkman was always in my hand, it seems like. Ozzy's Ultimate Sin was my main go-to album. I absolutely loved the previous record, Bark at the Moon, and this was three years in the making. I used to read magazines like Circus and Hip Parader, and they kept me tuned into what was going to be coming out. Ultimate Sin had been teased for a while, and it did not disappoint. Number two, maybe it was closer to 1A, 1B kind of thing, was Judas Priest's Turbo. They leaned into synth and colored leather, so yep, yep. Uh, but I still ate it up. It hurts a little to lump them in with hair bands, but that's where they were sitting in 86, let's be mm -hmm. honest. <laughs> um, Cinderella and Poison had two incredibly successful debuts with Night Songs and Look What the Cat Dragged In. My Night Songs cassette did not survive the attempted resurrection this week. My tape player ate it, so it had a burial. A very honorable burial in the garbage. Um, it's too bad Poison did survive. <laughs> they are not a band I can listen to anymore. I just listened to it too much, played it in too many bands. And when I actually sat down to listen to it for the purposes of listening and not just practicing it, I didn't really care for it. Mm -hmm. Europe hit a big with a final countdown. You know, that's that's a song every band dreams of. That song is going to live forever. It'll never go away. Rat was still going strong with her third album, Dancing Undercover. Alice Cooper's Constrictor, that, that pulled me in because he did a song for the Friday the 13th Part 6 movie called He's Back, in parentheses, The Man Behind the Mask. If anybody wants a little bit of trivia, Alice's bassist at the time was Kip Winger. Yes, that winger. <laughs> <laughs> Even back then, I was, I was exploring all these, uh, all these loose threads off of bands. I'd pay attention to who was producing them. And I'd read the liner notes. Oh, this was the guest musician. Let me go here and here and here and figure all this stuff out. One of the ones that stuck out to me was Vinnie Vincent because he struck out on his own after getting kicked out of Kiss. There were some good songs on there, but Vinnie never met a note he didn't like to play. Fuck it. I'm going to play them all. It was pretty <laughs> much the way he attacked a guitar. They didn't care if it was the right key. <laughs> Black and Blue, there was a hidden gem. I'm not sure if too many people were aware of. No. And two bands that couldn't be more polar opposites, Striper and Wasp. No, you're if right. there was hairspray, I, I was involved. I gave it a chance. And maybe it was admitting to listening to Striper that was giving me that feeling of embarrassment. Yeah. Well, all these bands, this is the mat that I remember from the 80s <laughs> when I met you. <laughs> and, and I hope, you know, every band I listed off there, somebody was going, oh, shit. Yeah, I remember that. 
I, I, I love those moments, you know, it, it, the, the nostalgia, the memories. Mm-hmm. I've been listening to this stuff all week and it's been a great week of memories. Cruising around, blasting music with the windows down, just like I did <laughs> in 1986. 1986 was also my first trip to the Montreal Forum to see my first concert, Triumph. And a Canadian band, another Canadian band, Brighton Rock opened up for them. Triumph wasn't hair band, but it really wasn't all hair either. Iron Maiden was probably my limit in 86, but even they were adding synth to fill out their sound on somewhere in time. Yeah, the forum, man. That's funny you bring that up. That was my first concert as well. I think growing up in Northern Vermont, a lot of us went to the Montreal Forum for our first big concerts. Yeah. There were some legendary feuds that took place. This is more up your alley because of the style of music. I, I say feuds because it was probably inflated to sell those music magazines to you that uh. you were reading. <laughs> but there was Metallica versus Megadeth. That was one of them. What, what was the story here, Matt? Uh, well, boy was in band. Boy gets kicked out because he's a bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> boy creates a new band that kicks just as much ass as his previous one. But seriously, uh, I don't think this feud was uh, elevated in the press to sell anything. I think that there was legitimate beef between the two um you know dave mustaine for anybody who doesn't know he was the original lead guitarist for metallica and dave also really liked to drink and he would get very aggressive while drinking and that led to a lot of clashes with members of the band i think there was always kind of clashes i think i remember the story that he didn't even audition for the band he just showed up after reading the ad and said no you're in (laughs) <laughs> so, I, you know, there wasn't really a whole lot of, hey, get to know you, period. Let's see if we're actually compatible. But after a gig in New York, I think it was around Rochester, they decided they just couldn't continue with his behavior. And okay. they sent him home on a bus. <laughs> uh, D- M- Dave Mustaine, he does have songwriting credits on their first two albums because he was kicked out before they had any releases. And Mustaine took the song, The Four Horsemen from Metallica's Kill Em All. He made it angrier and much, much faster and titled it Mechanics. He was not shy about hating those guys. I still don't think he's too shy about it. <laughs> he didn't want them using his songs or his solos. Kirk Hammett did base his solos around Dave's, but that was under direction of the record label. I've never heard the originals to compare, so I can't really, you know, say, yeah, that's fact or fiction, but I don't hear anybody disputing it either. Those two bands, they were in a constant game of trying to outdo each other to see who could write heavier, angrier songs. Well, it is funny because even though I wasn't really into, you know, metal the same way you were in 1986, Megadeth had stepped up with Peace Cells, but then Metallica releases Master of Puppets. (laughs) And I think a lot of people think the Black Album or Injustice for All was their breakthrough album. But Master of Puppets, this album is credited with unifying thrash. In 2015, Master of Puppets became the first metal recording to be selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Recording Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And hey, it sold 10 million copies. So which band do you think came out on top, Megadeth or Metallica? Boy, that's tough because they did go in different directions. Metallica may have won more listeners, especially with when they released the Black Album. But Megadeth, I think, kind of won the fight because they continued pioneering thrash. Mm-hmm. I, I, there really is no winner because they are two, two different, so different bands. 
in the Metallica documentary, Some Kind of Monster, there was a really heavy moment with Lars and Dave that's worth watching. You can probably find the clip on YouTube. It's good to see Dave state his side of the story directly to Lars. I've never seen that. I'll check it out. Yeah. And Lars, you can see it's either he's kind of rubbing his face. So it's like it's either hitting him hard or he wants to tell Dave he's full of shit and <laughs> be somewhere else in that <laughs> moment. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there was another feud. Uh, And you and I definitely heard about this and probably people who are listening to the show who were around in the 80s would have heard about this. It was very popular. Why don't you tell us about that? The feud. The feud that probably everybody is more familiar with of Van Halen versus David Lee Roth. Ding, ding. (laughs) Ding, ding. Yeah, right. Who's going to win? They both gave us great albums. 5150 and Eat Em and Smile. It did seem that more of the mudslinging came from the Van Halen side of things. Yeah, you're you're right. I've never heard Dave ever say a bad thing about Van Halen other than him saying that they had creative differences. Yeah, and I won't speak ill of Eddie. Uh, I I think he was just very protective of the band. It's his and Alex's name on the thing. Dave surrounded himself with some excellent talent, Billy Sheehan, Steve I, and Greg Bissonette. Hiring Steve I may have felt like a shot across the bow at Eddie because Steve I is a pretty incredible guitarist. But those two bands are just like Megadeth and Metallica. Now they're just very different. David Lee Roth was born to perform and he is great at it. Yeah. I also think his importance in the writing is possibly underappreciated too, because there was a, de- a distinct songwriting difference when Sammy Hagar was in the band. Because mm-hmm. Sammy Hagar, I think, is underappreciated as a singer too. He knows what he is and he just goes for it, sings his ass off. But regardless, 5150 and Eat Him and Smile, they're both great. You know, and sorry, I tried to be brief, but this is like prime teenage me (laughs) in finding all of this music. It's not a problem. I completely understand. Some of these years in the 80s, as we go through the show, are going to take up a big part of our music memories. This is when we were in our teens. I touched on the Beastie Boys earlier, but I was just starting to really discover rap and hip hop in 1986. There was Run DMC. They had the first multi-platinum rap album. Songs like My Adidas and It's Tricky were great, but their collaboration with Aerosmith and Walk This Way, that was a real breakdown of racial barriers and culturally influenced music. The walls were kicked in, literally, not just, just like the, the video, video. Yeah. yeah. But, and, and rap music found itself in the living rooms of homes all across America, thanks to MTV. Yes, and this video, and more particularly Run DMC, they resurrected Aerosmith. Oh, big time. They did, yeah. Other pioneers were also out there making their mark. I owned a Cool Modi cassette. I had a 45 by the Fat Boys, and artists like Houdini, salt and Peppa, Too Short, and MC Hammer were out there laying the groundwork for things that were going to come very soon. Four years from now, Rap is going to be very consistently charting in the top 10. But moving away from rap music, Matt, we were, what, 12, 13, 14 years old in 1986? Mm. Come on, let's talk about it. Were you crushing on the Bangles, Belinda Carlisle, and probably Bananarama as badly as I was? (laughs) Yes, yes, and probably yes. (laughs) If I had met Belinda Carlisle when I was 14... I would have proposed to her on the spot. I almost put her in my five this week, just out of the sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> Another near miss. 
all of these ladies, especially the Bangles, were putting out good music too. The Bangles released Different Light in January, and it would continue to chart through the year. I don't think people realize how big this album was retrospectively. And before I move away, another thing about Belinda Carlisle that a lot of people don't realize is that the Go-Go's worked on her solo album. A lot of them helped write the songs for that album. She was perceived as kind of a diva, I think, at the time and having broken away and had a solo career. But actually, if you go back and watch any documentaries on the Go-Go's, you'll discover that she was actually probably the biggest sweetheart in the band and knew her job was just to be the lead singer. And when she was breaking out to do a solo career, the rest of that band were 100% behind her doing that. But the big album of 1986, let's face it, I think it's the top selling album of 1986, was Madonna's True Blue. That title track, you had Papa Don't Preach, La Isla Bonita. And I get that you and I were, were not really big Madonna guys, but you couldn't avoid this album. It was everywhere. Mm, yeah, as much as I tried, no, I couldn't avoid it. <laughs> it. It was pretty huge. I had left pop behind for the most part. I was a fan of Madonna when she first came to the scene, but that was like 83. Three years may not sound like much, but we're talking the difference between me being 12 and 15. Mm-hmm. You no, know, I have her holiday 45 to prove it. You know, I was <laughs> listening to her when she first came out. But once I heard Ozzy, it felt like I found my way. I found my people and I and it was probably more than a dick in my feelings towards pop <laughs> that I probably carried with me to today. Uh, and I should really apologize and thank everyone for putting up with all the eye rolls when someone tried to put on Bruce Hornsby or Billy Ocean. That was probably me. <laughs> oh there was plenty of people <laughs> but, but there there were things i tolerated lionel richie gave me so many great musical memories with a commodore as a he got a pass mm-hmm. no matter how you know he much he bought into you know the sound of the day and that was usually the determining factor tina turner and aretha franklin we both absolutely love them but if i'm being honest that's not how i want to remember their music well, it's it's not going to be a secret for long on this show. I know this, and everybody else will find out about this very soon. You're a huge Prince fan. What did you think of his soundtrack to Under the Cherry Moon, the Parade album? Yes, I love Prince, and I have nothing but the highest opinion of his talent. Kiss is one of my favorite Prince songs. Mm-hmm. But most of his music going forward, really post-Purple Rain, wasn't for me there were there were good songs but i wasn't getting you know complete albums which is what i prefer but if an artist is going to give me bangers out of their first you know what six seven albums i'll i'll be a fan you know and i won't uh say really anything bad about because the talent and the love is there the same goes for the ramones animal boy it's got some good songs on it is it full of the same magic from their first albums no but it's the ramones i'm never going to say uh, what they do sucks. It, you know, it just uh, wasn't matching what they originally were putting out. So, Jim, to break away from like specifically just name dropping everything, <laughs> in all of the 80s music love affair we're having, I do have a gripe. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare for the first rant from Matt. The first of many we will probably hear <laughs> over the course of this show. <laughs> a gripe? Yeah. Oh, you with music? Let's hear it. What's that? Yeah. People will soon realize that Jim's approach 
is more metered than mine is. He might think things through a little more clearly. <laughs> I'm a little more of the hot take guy. But a lot of this music, not all of it, a lot of this music should be re-recorded. Because I think some of the songs are really good. I just have a lot of sound issues with it. At the time, it's, it's what we had. But going back and listening this week was really rough. I have avoided listening to certain songs based solely on the sound. The 80s were not a subtle decade in America. Bright colors were everywhere. Hair metal was mainstream. Say no more. <laughs> right? It, it was the peacock decade. I'm here today admitting my love of it. But it was a bit of a zoo. Mm-hmm. One of my heroes, Ozzy Osbourne, he was in on it too. There was so much boominess and reverb, especially on the drums. The pop had too much synth bass. Keyboards were trying to sound like horns and everything other than a piano or what, you know, I grew up a keyboard, you know, sounding like. Just use horns, please. <laughs> That's all I ask. Use real, use real horns. When it wasn't horns, it was like this bell kind of chime sound that just grated on my nerves. Listening to music from 1971 for our first show last week, my my issues with the sound are reinforced. And maybe it led me to not really giving 86 some of the forgiveness that maybe I should. But just follow bands like ZZ Top through their whole discography and you'll hear the drum sound I'm talking about. I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of the blame lies at the feet of Phil Collins. Oh, I... I think it probably does it definitely was a sound of its time and possibly more than any other decade when you hear that sound it's instantly recognizable yes and i loved it back in the day you know i i soured on some of it quickly Mm -hmm. it's just something i wish was better i don't mean to rant or imply the 80s suck they do not i i would never i would never say they suck and i would never go so far as to call it craptastic either Before we get out to our five, we should probably acknowledge that soundtracks are going to be a big part of the 80s. Yeah, There was Crossroads, which I got enjoyment out of the guitar battle at the end of the movie with Steve Vai and Ralph Mm -hmm. Macchio. (laughs) I wish they would have just put that on the soundtrack. David Bowie started in and provided the soundtrack for Labyrinth. That was a good movie. Yeah, John Hughes, his movies, they always had big soundtracks and Pretty in Pink was no exception. He had this. He was Quentin Tarantino before Quentin Tarantino. He just has oh, his yeah. back for picking the right music mm-hmm. for his movies that impact the scene and they're timely. They impact the target audience a lot. You, you can't separate those songs from the movies in your head. Yeah. When you see the title of the movie, you hear the song. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's when you know it's made a huge impact on you. Mm-hmm. Then there was Top Gun. That thing sold 12 million copies and was the fifth best-selling album of 1986. I can't tell you how many hours of my life I spent spinning the 45 of Danger Zone in my house <laughs> over and over again. But come on, let's face it. Playing with the boys was really, you know, uh, the, yeah, the favorite song. No, it wasn't. Come on. The, the volleyball scene. <laughs> when you're 14 or 15 years old, you grow up and you're, you were taught that it was homoerotic, but it wasn't to us at that time. No. It was just cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But now I it, want to go play beach volleyballs for about 20 play years. Beach volleyballs. For about, <laughs> I want to, I want to. <laughs> and for about 20 years, that joke was appropriate. Now it's no longer appropriate. <laughs> yes. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. Um, another soundtrack that was huge. Uh, ACDC. 
did the soundtrack for the Stephen King movie, Who Made Who? While it was mostly greatest hits, there was a couple new instrumentals and, of course, the title song, Who Made Who? That is definitely one of their most well-known, recognizable songs. And one last thought here. New wave and alternative music was intertwined in, in bands like New Order and Depeche Mode. While they were considered underground, they were releasing cult classic albums, artists that had always kind of stayed away from the mainstream, like Peter Gabriel, his music was odd up until this point, and the Talking Heads had always kind of been outside the pop edge. Suddenly, they had mainstream hits. The Talking Heads' Wild Wild Life was such a great song, mm. and, and Gabriel had huge hits with Big Time and Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer is still the most played music video of all time, and it broke ground with its unmatched creativity. You know the funny thing, Matt? As much as I think I was excited to come to the 80s, though, I don't believe we're cracking the best year first. By far, we are not. No. So I'm going to cherry pick a word you used earlier and stick it right here. 1986 wasn't a year of timeless music, but it served us well at the time. So I'm officially going to declare 1986 as craptastic. That's great. <laughs> it does sum it up. There's a lot here that was meaningful at the time, just like you said. And uh, that's one thing I have to get better at doing with music. It, it's okay if it serves a purpose in the moment and it doesn't have to be forever. No, it doesn't. So, so that, that is definitely a roadblock that I have to get past with certain things. Because there isn't really much from 86 that has carried with me through the years. The sound, though, is definitely craptastic. Yes, it is. <laughs> you have to, I'm separating the sound from the actual songs. Yes. <laughs> Damn you, Phil Collins, and that drum sound. <laughs> Damn. Damn you, but also thank you. Yes. Thank you. There are certain songs that we need from him that have that sound. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think 1986 was your decision so that means going into our five you're going to start us off well i just mentioned him so i'm going to start off with a song that i couldn't leave 1986 behind without talking about if people have known me in my lifetime and they knew me in high school they knew of my obsession and my idolization of the movie say anything and lloyd dobler he was, I want to say, my fictional film hero as far as how a, a young man would romanticize a relationship with the girl that he was seemingly obsessed with in the movie. You know? <laughs> this is so you. It is. <laughs> but but it, the song is In Your Eyes, Peter Gabriel, In Your Eyes. It is the greatest love song of all time in my books. The iconic boombox scene cemented an imagery in cinema history and it became a fabric of my soul. It, it wasn't a bad thing to want to be Lloyd Dobler. No, and no, he's a good guy. No, no, he was a good guy. And he had great taste in music. Yes. And this just reinforces what we were talking about with soundtracks to movies and, yeah. and how that, that imagery, you can't hear that song without seeing that scene. No, it, it just, it's right there. Yep. And for those of people who do know Jim, they will agree. He is Lloyd Dobler. <laughs> he is in a good way in a good way i want to I don't think there is a bad way to be Lloyd i want to buy something not sold and i want to <laughs> <laughs> all right so that's my first pick matt 
what are you bringing us to for 1986? Number one. All right. My first one, I'll give a salute to hair metal that I was into back in the day with Cinderella and Shake Me. Great debut album full of fantastic songs. Night Songs was up there with Ozzy and Priest in terms of repeated listens. This may have been the album of that summer for me of 1986 shake me it's it's still a really good song whenever i hear it i can feel the sun on my face just like i'm back in the summer of 86 look man don't hate me i've seen cinderella in concert i saw cinderella play with extreme and david lee roth in 1991 and cinderella stole the show i think they're fantastic however i'm going to say something funny that you might not like about this song I was listening to it the other day, getting ready for the show. And all of a sudden I realized that it sounded like what you would get when you order ACDC shook me all night long off of wish. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it even has the all night long. It has shake me. There's a element of that bluesy rock guitar thing going on. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of bands you don't have without ACDC, but no. they, yeah, you know what? I never, I'm going to have to listen to these two songs side by side to see if go, I hear go it. Go check it out. Cause see it just, if I hear a rip. It Look, it's still a good song. So I have no yes. issues with it and it, I'm happy to have it on the playlist. All right. So where are you going to bring us for your second song? Oh, my second song. Well, we talked about the great feud. We are going to go to Van Halen and the song, why can't this be love? Van Hagar, as it became affectionately (laughs) known, began strong. I loved the keyboard, guitar, bass groove in the intro. And those Eddie and Michael Anthony harmonies are the best in rock and roll for their era. And, And Sammy just punches straight out of the gate as a powerhouse with no intimidation of his predecessor. He just makes you immediately wipe away worrying about what happened to David Lee Roth and Van Halen. Oh yeah. He made a statement on this mm-hmm. whole album. I remember uh, my good friend, Eric, he, he came over and we listened to this when he first bought it and we just kept listening to it over and over. I went right out and got it <laughs> in, in a way. It was good that Dave left the band because I don't think they could have followed up 1984 with the way that band was mm-hmm. Sammy just, he was a breath of fresh air for Van Halen and his fingerprints are all over the songwriting. I'm glad you brought up the harmonies. This is just as much of a signature sound of the band as Eddie's guitar, or Alex's drums. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. I think Van Halen 1984 was such a huge album that mm. they needed something to change because we've seen it happen with so many bands that once they have an album that gets as big as 1984 did, there's nowhere left for them to go. <laughs> and Sammy Hagar coming in, what you talked about earlier in the show is dynamic as vocal and what he brought to the band with his songwriting changed their approach enough to keep them relevant right up and, you know, through the nineties. So yeah. And it and, actually brought relevancy to Sammy Hagar too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, he was a guy who possibly, you know, would have fallen off the scene after the early eighties and great songwriter, great voice, but he just didn't seem to have the staying power until he joined Van Halen. And then once he was with them, suddenly you kind of see Van Halen a little bit more with Sammy Hagar. Or it, it goes back and forth. Somebody says Van Halen to you. You don't always imagine David yeah. Lee Roth first now. Yeah, he did a great right. job. So that is my second choice. What is your number two song for 1986? I'm going to bring up Tesla's Modern Day Cowboy. Tesla got lumped in with hair. But over time, the, I 
think they've separated themselves out of that pack. And really they kind of shouldn't have been lumped in there to begin with. Mm -hmm. it, it, it feels off to talk about Tesla here when we're talking about hair metal, but this was released late in 86 and it was a slow burn. Mark bought it because we were going to go see them open for Def Leppard in Portland, Maine. Great album, great live band. Um, I, there's no like big, huge sentimental attachment to the song. It just rocks. Yeah. Tesla's a great band. And I think they're one of those bands that, like myself, even though I wasn't a huge hair metal guy, I really love them. And I don't think they should get lumped in with that. I think they came along with the wrong generation. They would have fit right into the 90s alternative rock scene, I believe, in the way kind of Blind Melon did or something mm -hmm. along those yeah. lines. They had a classic sound, but I think they were a little bit ahead of their time, if that makes sense, in that era. Yeah, they were either kind of a little ahead or a little behind. Yeah. R regardless, great band. Great band. Great band. All right, what's your next song? My third choice is R.E.M. Superman. Right here, for me, this is the beginning of American alternative music. It starts here. The album Life's Rich Pageant, other really good songs on this, Fall On Me. I, I listened to the album this week. I was surprised going back to it. I thought, oh, I'm going to go listen to an R.E.M. album, and I've heard these way too many times. I'm going to be tired of it and fatigued. And I thought it was really great. I didn't realize how good this album sounds now surrounded by all the other 80s music yeah. until I listened to it amongst all of it, probably for the first time in a few decades, to be honest with you. It's so good. And I think this song kind of perfectly represents R.E.M. You said something at the beginning that I never really, never really thought about, but it does ring true. This is where... I think for our generation where alternative music does begin. Yeah. It does have that feeling, you know, every generation probably has their, you know, their moment where a, a certain genre, even though it's, you know, kind of been simmering under the surface, mm -hmm. but this is where it definitely became noticeable. Mm -hmm. And I also learned something this week. I'm not a big REM listener. I've always liked this song and I always got a sixties vibe from it. The harmonies and that musical bridge. I had no idea this was a cover. Okay. From a, uh, from a sixties band, the click. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, cool. I, I, would, I was out of the, I was out of the loop, but it was, <laughs> it does make me view the song differently. Oh, absolutely. Because it's always nice to hear how a band puts their own, they did a pretty honest representation of it. Uh, but I like their version better. But I think as outsiders, we didn't know this song. Yeah. They, they found a song that was probably the alternative song of the 1960s. <laughs> so it's, it's cool. They brought it in. But when I do listen to the original version, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is it's still it's an R.E.M. song. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it does. It, it, it just really encapsulates their sound. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, perfectly. All right. So that is my third choice. What is your. Well, you brought Van Halen. I'll bring David Lee Roth and Yankee Rose. All right. <laughs> it's too bad, but I think the world's kind of forgotten Dave's solo albums. You don't have to choose between the two. You can have David Lee Roth and Van Halen. They're both great. Yankee Rose is such a Dave song. It is him. It, it's entertaining. It's catchy. It's happy. It, it's like David Lee Roth. It's like a David Lee Roth show crammed into four minutes. <laughs> 
Dave knew his talents without a doubt. Yeah. Hell yeah. What he had to offer, he delivered it perfectly here. He starts the song by having a cheeky conversation with the guitar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's humor, it's talent, and the entertainment value is brilliant. Yeah, he's not out to be a rock and roll hero. He's out no. to show people a good time, just be an all-around entertainer. But the best time. yeah 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 and and i've i've seen him live he is he's fun to watch he does a good job cool okay so where are you going to go with your fourth song well i'm going to go back to the beginning of this show and i'm going to take us to the beastie boys album licensed to ill and the song is no sleep till brooklyn because that's the one i didn't mention in case anybody was throwing their beer (laughs) and score at home (laughs) what (laughs) he didn't say no sleep till brooklyn there it is. No sleep till Brooklyn. Drinking 40s and smoking blunt. <laughs> Somehow I got away with singing along to this song as a kid. It's, <laughs> it's just fun music. It's got a heavy beat, great guitar riff, and even better rhyming from rap's greatest trio. The fun is what made the Beastie Boys a great listen. Great choice. Yeah. All right. So my, is my fourth. fourth. Yeah. Well, I've already said I love Prince, so I'm going to bring a Prince song and kiss. Here we go. You know, hey, yeah, I, I may have lost touch with uh, him after Purple Rain a little bit because the hair metal came into my life. I've been tuning out pop for a while. I, I was hooked in the first time I heard it. I, there's a subtlety in everything on this song. And Prince is he's one of my favorite all time guitarists. Oh, Whatever yeah. comes to mind, he can just do it. And he tailors the sound of whatever instrument he's playing because he can play them all in service to the song it's not about hey look what i can do on the guitar look what i can make for a song 100 he does not try to be flashy musically on this it's just about a great song and as we go through the show we'll talk about how prince wrote great songs possibly for a lot of other musicians this is one he probably could have passed off but he kept it to himself and it's not as dynamic as a lot of his other solo material But yeah, man, here he is right now. Iconic, timeless classic. And it's a great first song of his to bring to the playlist. And we should give a nod to uh, Tom Jones's cover. Yeah, that that is good. (laughs) It (laughs) It is is a good cover. (laughs) Yeah, he took it and kicked ass. Yeah, he did. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jim, how are you going to round out your five? All right, I'm going to round out my five with a guy by 1986 who'd probably seen some of his better years and then put out possibly his greatest album. That is Paul Simon, the album's Graceland, and the song is You Can Call Me Al. Graceland was such a big album, and this song was a great single from it. It was playful, has cool instrumentation between the horns and the bass breakdowns, and come on, a flute solo. It has a flute solo (laughs) in it, and it works. I was in Liverpool one night. I was at the Cavern where the Beatles originated and they have different guys get up on stage and either play Beatles music or play acoustic stuff. That's popular music. And this guy got up and he played, you can call me Al on his acoustic guitar. Oh, cool. And he actually looped his guitar and in the middle of it, pulled the flute out of his bag and played the solo up on stage. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That would have been awesome. It was, it was great. It was great. And, and we can't ever forget the Chevy Chase appearance in the music video. Mm. It, it was fun stuff to us as, as youngsters. 
even metal me in 1986 could get behind this song. There's just, there's a contagious happiness in it. And, and Paul Simon, he could pull on the, the heartstrings from nostalgia. Yeah. And I will say in the eighties, no matter how much great music Paul Simon gave us, or even in the seventies, I think the one thing that made him the coolest was marrying princess Leia. <laughs> didn't, it didn't last long. Didn't no, last long. no, but still it gave him some cred <laughs> to us nerds. It did. It did. All right. So what's your last song? All right. I'm going to finish it up with iron maidens wasted years. There's going to be a lot of competition when we're choosing our five songs every week and Iron Maiden's going to come out on the losing side a few times. So I got to add them <laughs> where I can. I'll always love Maiden for being that one metal band I listened to back in the eighties that would take my ears to different places. Mm-hmm. They could get proggy. They're still going strong as is wasted years. Great, great song. My poor cassette kept getting rewound to listen to it. I'm surprised <laughs> I didn't kill it. That is one guitar lick I will never forget. Yeah, this was great to listen to this week because I'm not too familiar with Iron Maiden. Wasn't a band I really followed or got into back in the 80s. And I'll admit, it's probably a little dated to me now, but I can understand why in 86, this was a great hard rock song. And you're absolutely right. The lick is what carries that tune all the way through. Yeah, not a problem. So, all right. So that's it. All wrapped up in a bow for us. 1986 is complete. There you go. We hope we hit on everything for you that you wanted to hear. I'm sure there's stuff <laughs> there we missed. There's certainly a lot to get into. We yeah. didn't too much to talk about, but uh, and it kind of uh, hamstrings you with being able to put in detail. It does. It does. So because I chose 1986, Matt, and you, you know, I'm sure you're so pleased I did that. But here we are at the start of the show. <laughs> We've gotten it behind us. Not the best year of the 80s. Where are you going to take us next? I'm not sure if this was a great idea when I finally decided because we're new to this. I thought maybe we ought to cover some um, very familiar years to get our sea legs. And we have 50 plus years of music to cover. And there are better years in the 80s, obviously. But let's just go back a few at the start of the decade and see what 1980 has to offer. Oh, that should be fun. That'll be a good time. Yes, it will. Yeah, I mean, I was probably seven or eight years old. So everything I'm going to talk about, I heard from the backseat of the car <laughs> as my yeah. parents were going down the road. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. So at the end of this show, version 1986, we are definitely looking forward to next week's version 1980. We want to thank everybody for tuning in. Jim, as always, it has been a pleasure talking to you. And I'm sure we will keep in touch through the week. Um, with more than a couple disagreements about what's great and what sucks. <laughs> yeah. And if you're out there listening to the show, we do have a Facebook group. It might be dated by the time you get to listen to this. You know, who knows <laughs> yeah. by the time you find the show. But look us up, see what we've done. Take a look through at some of the polls that we've put out or shows that we've released or some of the engagement that we place there because we'd be more than happy to have you join occasionally we put up a tiktok video but we'll see how that goes yeah yeah, because music is timeless it is right so so everything that we have to offer it 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 fits the bill it does so i'm gonna say good night everybody peace love and podcast